Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Enhancing Control, Maximizing Outcomes, Advancements in Care for Children with Inadequately Controlled Asthma. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. My name is Sandy Durrani. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. This program is aimed at identifying patients that can benefit from treatment intensification with biologics and how to integrate biologics into treatment. So let's begin with differentiating uncontrolled asthma from severe asthma. So not all uncontrolled asthma is severe asthma. The vast majority of uncontrolled asthma is difficult to treat asthma, meaning there are confounding factors that are making the asthma uncontrolled, like medication adherence, improper inhaler technique, comorbidities like sleep apnea, reflux, sinus disease, poor drug delivery. So it's important to assess all those factors in uncontrolled asthma. Once you've addressed all of them and you still have severe asthma or therapy-resistant asthma, then you have what we call severe asthma. So both international GINA and American Thoracic Society definitions of severe asthma are very similar. It requires a high dose of inhaled corticosteroid with a second controller, most commonly long-acting beta agnes or LABA, and the disease has to be uncontrolled. It's important when you assess a patient, you assess their impairment or the frequency of symptoms as well as the number of exacerbations they've had in the past year. And then you want to assess, are they having lung function decline over time, and are they having side effects to medications? So when I'm explaining to my fellows how to identify and control asthma in practice, I ask them to go in the room and assess impairment and risk. So what is impairment? Impairment is symptom control, frequency of symptoms, activity limitation, frequency of use of rescue inhalers. And you can assess this using tools. Most commonly, what we use in practice is the asthma control test. So anytime they come in for an outpatient visit, they should get an ACT. You can also use the asthma control questionnaire. So when identifying uncontrolled asthma, the first thing to do is take a great history. After that, you can assess via spirometry. Remember, especially in children, spirometry is often normal. You also want to assess if there's a masquerader that is mimicking uncontrolled asthma. And once you assess for an alternative diagnosis, if that's not in place, then you evaluate and optimize difficult to treat asthma. And if you optimize difficult to treat asthma and you still have uncontrolled asthma, that's when you have severe asthma. Now we'll look at when to intensify treatment with biologics and the current known efficacy of the available biologic therapies. So we're all familiar with the stepwise approach paradigm for uncontrolled asthma. Some important changes in the last couple of years. Step one has been eliminated, and there are now only five steps. There is a reference here to MARD maintenance and reliever treatment. This is the use of low-dose ICS formoterol as a rescue, replacing buterol, also known as anti-inflammatory rescue. You're going to see this more and more become standard of care. There's other additions, including the addition of teotropium, azithromycin, house dust might slit. But lastly, most importantly, oral corticosteroids is now a pariah. It should be used as last resort and in their place are biologics. 
So here are the FDA-approved biologic therapies for children and adolescents. You'll see that there are five currently approved. The first three are six and above. The last two are 12 and above, although they are currently in active investigation between six and 11 years of age. Omalizumab is anti-IG. It's indicated for moderate, severe, persistent allergic asthma. Mepolizumab is anti-L5, which is involved in the survival and activation and maturation of the eosinophils. That's indicated for severe eosinophilic asthma. Stupilumab, which blocks IL-4 receptor alpha, which is the receptor for IL-4 and IL-13 and prevents their downstream effects. This is indicated for moderate severe eosinophilic asthma and OCS-dependent asthma. Then there's benralizumab, which binds to IL-5 receptor alpha, which leads to apoptosis of eosinophils and an eosinopenic state. It's indicated for severe eosinophilic asthma. And lastly, just approved tezipilumab. It is anti-TSLP and is indicated for severe asthma without bio marker or phenotypic indication. So these are the key efficacy results and approved biologics for children six and above for dupilumab, omalizumab, and mepolizumab. Dupilumab has a robust exacerbation reduction of 60% and a significant improvement in lung function. Omalizumab has more modest effects in exacerbations, not much of a lung function benefit. Then there's mepolizumab, which you can see here also has a reduction in exacerbations. And these are the key efficacy results for approved biologics for children 12 and above for tezipelumab and benralizumab. It's important to note, none of these are head-to-head. You can make indirect comparisons, but not direct comparisons since those studies have never been undertaken. Again, similar results to dupilumab in terms of exacerbation reduction and lung function. Benralizumab is similar to both tezipelumab and dupilumab in terms of reduction exacerbations and lung function improvement. So here is a slide reviewing the commonly considered safety issues regarding the five biologics, a question of paramount importance to families. The most common side effect we see with all of these medications are injection site reactions, and it's commonly misunderstood that that represents an allergic reaction. It's an irritant response. You can treat with ice or a little bit of an antihistamine and sometimes some topical steroid, but it is not an indicator that the patient is allergic. It's extremely rare to have an allergic reaction to any of these medications, including emolizumab, which does have a box warning of one to two in a thousand that was seen in clinical trials and post-marketing reports. In reality, that is really rare. In fact, so rare, the FDA is now allowing omalizumab to be administered at home after the first three doses. Other things to consider, mepolizumab has a potential issue with reactivation of herpes zoster. Again, in practice, we see this very rarely, and dupilumab has a rare risk of esophilia and parasites. The question I get asked the most as an allergist is, what is the risk of hypersensitivity reactions? And overall, these are exceedingly rare phenomenon. In fact, if you do have a patient who reports a hypersensitivity reaction to any of the biologics, I would recommend referring to allergy. So looking at this more granularly, Somalizumab may be a slightly increased signal for anaphylaxis, anywhere from one to four in a thousand. Dupilumab does have a modest increase in eosinophil counts at times, but that does not affect efficacy, and they are, it's extremely rare. They are of clinical consequences.
what they've seen is on average, the ESFL accounts rise to about 300 to 500 and generally resolve within six months. It does not affect efficacy and they are rarely a clinical consequence. The only time we see potentially clinical consequence is likely those patients who already have antecedent hyperacinophilic syndrome, which is also very rare. And then lastly, there is some signal for parasite infections with dupilumab only in one trial, the 6 to 11-year-old voyage study, which was the study looking at the efficacy of dupilumab and asthma. What they found is those patients were getting pinworms. They think it's related to the fact that these kids were probably eating dirt in this study. They did not need to stop the study medication they treated through the parasite. All those kids did well. So how do we select a biologic for a patient? Let's talk phenotype and endotype. So phenotype is how a patient presents clinically. Are they exacerbation prone? Is their lung function declining? Do they have comorbidities? And so when you think about phenotype, we ask ourselves, is there a mechanism that underpins that phenotype called endotype? And there are really three key endotypes when we think about asthma. The first is elevated fractional exhaled nitric oxide or pheno production. And that is IL-4, IL-13 dependent through the INOS pathway, which leads to increased fractional exhaled nitric oxide. Next, we think about elevated eosinophils and eosinophil activation. Several cytokines are involved with that pathway, including IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And then lastly, we think about allergen-specific IgE. That's through the B-cell class switching pathway, and that's generally IL-4 dependent. What do we think about in terms of practical considerations? Well, the first thing our families ask us is how frequently do I have to give this shot and where can I give this shot? But you also have to think about, do I need to know what the child's weight is in order to dose? Um, is their lung function a consideration? As I stated before, lung function is typically normal in kids, but sometimes it does decline early. And that's when you might be more likely to consider a biologic such as dupilumab or tezipilumab. And then is there a predictive biomarker to guide you, which we'll discuss at next slide. And then finally, you know, what is the long-term safety efficacy data and what's the effectiveness against comorbidities? Again, there are many considerations when choosing a biologic. The first you think about is elevated eosinophils. Eosinophils greater than 150. I mean, you can choose any biologic in that case. So if your eosinophils are low, but you still have T2 inflammation in the form of elevated pheno, then you want to think about that INOS pathway. So you want to select either dupilumab or tezipilumab. And if there's allergen-provoked asthma, you can consider omalizumab. And lastly, if you're T2 or low T2, meaning you have low eosinophils and low fractional exhaled nitric oxide, then you would consider tezipilumab. So let's pull everything together based on what we've talked about previously and actually integrating a biologic in the treatment of a child with asthma. So we no longer are practicing in the 19th century manner of paternalism in medicine that you will listen to me as healthcare provider or else. We want a shared decision-making model, not only with the parent and caregiver, but also with the patient and child, especially if they can give assent. So there is very robust evidence that shared decision-making models are associated with improved quality of life and asthma control. And in fact, the CHESS Foundation has an SDM tool that can support this process practice. I think it's important prior to starting a biologic, you collect objective data on their previous year's asthma control. So you want to look at their a mean ACT score or look at the frequency of symptoms. You want to define how well they've done in the prior year. You want to assess how many exacerbations they had in the previous year. 
So once you've initiated the biologic, how do you assess for effectiveness? Well, first of all, you want to assess every four to six months. And even if you're a partial response or potentially consider a 12-month trial, and what are you assessing? You're assessing symptom improvement, reduction in healthier utilization, reduction in exacerbations, improvement in lung function, improvement in quality of life, and reduction in OCS use. And then in order to truly assess the effectiveness of biologic, you want to look at both pre-biologic and post-biologic data to help guide you on whether or not this biologic works best for the patient. So if a patient has a suboptimal response to biologic, the first thing you want to assess is adherence, not only the biologic, but to background asthma therapies, such as ICS lava, teotropram, etc. What we do find in real life practice is these patients start to feel so much better on the biologics, they self-discontinue their daily medications, and they subsequently backslide. So that's really important. The other thing, remember, about difficult treat asthma, you want to assess for other factors, inhaler technique, environmental controls, and poorly controlled comorbidities. So if they have not responded to addressing comorbidities and they are adherent to their biologic and their background therapies, I would recommend readdressing their phenotype endotypes, rechecking biomarkers to see if the correct biologic has been chosen for the correct endotype for that particular patient. And once you've addressed those and you still have suboptimal response to biologics, that's when you start considering switching to another biologic. The final take-home points are addressing underlying comorbidities, medication adherence, distinguishing between difficult-to-treat asthma and severe asthma. Next, remember that overall for all 6 and above and 12 and above, these medications are very safe. And once you have chosen the correct biologic for a particular patient, start that biologic in a shared decision-making model. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.